All right, I think it's time to start. We have too many fun participants and I believe that uh, some other participants will join us very soon. Okay, so hi everyone. Uh, welcome to another serious security seminar today. So today's speaker is uh, Levi Lloyd. Uh, Levi, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's really nice to see you. And I'm looking forward to, to be honest with, uh, to your presentation today. So I would like to briefly introduce uh, Levi. Um, so Levi Lloyd is a cybersecurity researcher at Lawrence Limor National Laboratory, where he works in the Cyber and Infrastructure Resilience Program. Um, his interests include software assurance, binary analysis, reverse engineering, uh, malware analysis, and network traffic analysis and defense. He has been involved in the creation of several frameworks aimed at doing cybersecurity analysis at scale. Um, so today his talk will be on securing the software supply chain. All right, well, thank you. Appreciate that introduction. It's great to be here with you all today. Um, you know, when I when I first got the invitation uh, to give this seminar, maybe six months ago or so, I was envisioning myself coming to to Purdue and being there with you in person. Um, which, as we know, the the pandemic has made it so that we can't do that as much anymore. But um, I was looking at the weather report today for Lafayette, and um, I'm actually kind of glad I'm I'm still here in sunny California. I'll let you guys uh, endure the the cold weather. But uh, still very happy to be here, and hopefully someday I'll get a chance to visit Purdue campus. So um, as, was, as was said, I'm going to talk to you today about securing the software supply chain. And I'll talk about some of the software assurance solutions that we've been developing here at Lawrence Livermore. So to start with, um, I just want to give a, a little bit of background and information about my organization. So Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory is one of uh, 17 Department of Energy National Laboratories uh, throughout the country. And um, it's located kind of on the outskirts of the San Francisco Bay Area in California. Um, it was established in the 50s, you know, at the beginning of the Cold War and um, was uh, instrumental in, in developing capabilities that helped us emerge from the, the Cold War. Um, you can see on this slide here some other details, uh, which I'll just let you read. But I want to I want to bring up our mission um, because I think it's really important and helps to kind of set the stage for what I'll be talking about today. And the mission of the laboratory is to strengthen our national security through world class science, technology, and engineering. And if you think about you know where the world was in the 50s, it was a very different place. Um, it was during the Cold War. And you know there was there was a need to um, develop this this nuclear deterrence, and um, essentially you know protect our nation uh, through those means. But over time things have evolved, and there are you know lots of different threats now to our national security. And because of that, Lawrence Livermore has kind of emerged and developed into a multi-program laboratory, and we're a multidisciplinary multi-program laboratory. And so over here on the side, you can see, you know, some of the, the disciplines um, that, you know, for the, the scientists and engineers that come to the lab, um, we're known for our uh, computing. So um, high performance computing is a, a big part of what we do at Lawrence Livermore. In fact, the, 
the photo you can see behind me in the virtual background here is uh, one of our supercomputers, uh, Sierra, that is currently the third fastest supercomputer in the world at 125 teraflops. So um, pretty big scale, high performance computing and something that we're all proud of here. Um, as was mentioned, I work in the area of cybersecurity. And so um, my particular area is focused, uh, kind of has kind of a dual nature. So we're interested in making sure that our energy sources are you know, renewable and not influenced by foreign powers. And then also we wanna make sure that the, the infrastructure that uh, provides our energy is um, free from vulnerabilities and is resilient to cyber attack. So that is the cyber and infrastructure resilience program that I work with. So let's talk about software. Um, you know, software is all around us. We all use it all the time. And quite often we don't even think about uh, the software that we're using. Uh, it tends to fade into the background unless you are a computer scientist or somebody that develops code, but um, we all use it. And it, it's really kind of a, a key part of our modern lives. And so if you think about um, some of these things that we interact with on a daily basis, um, sometimes we don't, we don't realize how much code is actually running in these. So let's, let's play a little game here. And if this was in person, I would do it interactive, but we'll just pretend like you're, you're answering. Um, so how many lines of code do you think are running on a Boeing 747? So there's actually six and a half million lines of code there. And we all have smartphones. We love them, we use them all the time. So I think these numbers may be a little dated, but the Android operating system is running about 15 million lines of code. Um, another example, healthcare.gov. You may re remember this came out several years ago and it's kind of this portal for uh, allowing Americans to find healthcare coverage. And it was a big deal when it came out because there were lots of problems. So it's actually 500 million lines of code to run that thing. And um, when, when they had all those problems on the in initial release, they had to patch it and it required another 100 million lines of code to do that. So the car down here, this Audi, uh, I'm not sure which model, but pretty fancy car. It's running 100 million different lines of code uh, in that automobile. And then down in the center, we have the Mars Curiosity rover, which only takes 5 million lines of code. So it just tells you it's easier to drive on Mars than it is to drive on Earth, probably because they don't have any crazy drivers on Mars yet. And finally, a nuclear power plant. How many lines of code do you think would be in a nuclear power plant? Well, I actually don't know, <laughs> but if you do know, please let me know because I would love to add that here. But it's a lot, you know, I'm sure it's millions of lines of code um, running in the different uh, control systems that work in our nuclear power plants. So this brings to mind a few questions. And if you think about, you know, kind of my background and where I'm working, you might see why I would have these questions. So let's think about it. What, which components are used in these, these devices or these things that we're interacting with? And where do these software components come from? How was it built? And is it safe to use? Are there any vulnerabilities in the software? And when you're thinking of national security, this next question is particularly relevant. Did my adversaries play a part in the development or the packaging of this software? 
And finally, were, were coding best practices used in its development? So, you know, these are all interesting questions and, and super relevant to our daily modern lives. Um, but when you think about our nation's critical infrastructure, the, the things that are providing our energy and the things that we rely on um, for our safety and our health and things like that, uh, these questions become even more important. Which is why statements like these are kind of concerning. So this is some testimony from Dan Coates, um, a former director of national intelligence that he gave in testimony to uh, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. And he basically said that there are foreign countries that are actively um, investigating and uh, trying out technologies to be able to disrupt our critical infrastructure. And, um, you know, this has been going on for years and it's, it's not a secret anymore. It's something that we talk openly about. And you can look up uh, newspaper articles as well that talk about what the United States is doing uh, in this regard to other countries. And so, you know, these type of things have, have moved to the forefront of, of the dialogue, the national dialogue. And frankly, it's, it's kind of concerning. So how do we secure our critical infrastructure? Well, um, obviously, the, the federal government has been thinking about that, and this is a, a chart that came from uh, a report that was uh, developed by the Cybersecurity and Information Security Agency, uh, part of DHS, that talks about uh, supply chain risks, and it kind of breaks up the supply chain into these different phases. And, you know, I apologize for the small font, you probably can't read it all, but just know that at each stage of the supply chain, there are opportunities for um, malicious actors to insert um, functionality that you may not want there. And there's also opportunities for vulnerabilities to creep in, you know, maybe, maybe unwittingly. And so these are things that we need to think about as we think about the software that's running in our critical infrastructure. Um, so let me give a few examples of why this is a concern or, or you know, how this has been manifested recently. So the first is uh, the Ripple 20 set of vulnerabilities that were disclosed um, last year, last September, um, or sorry, no, last June. They were initially discovered in September 2019. So these are a set of vulnerabilities that were disclosed for a bit of software called the Trek TCP IP stack. And this is a software stack that runs in a lot of embedded um, control systems. So uh, industrial control systems and, and medical devices and things like that. And what's interesting about, about Trek is they don't do a lot of direct sales to customer, you know, to the end customers. So they develop this uh, TCP IP stack and then other vendors incorporate that into their products. And um, the researchers that discovered these vulnerabilities, um, it's from JSOF uh, in Israel, found that uh, you know, there's, there's lots of different things that they could do to these devices that are running this uh, TCP IP stack. They demonstrated some remote code execution vulnerabilities and um, were able to basically take full control of these devices. And so if you are an asset owner, somebody that owns one of these industrial control systems or devices and use that for, um, you know, deploying your system or it's deployed in your system, then you would probably want to know if these vulnerabilities were present and what to do about them. 
Um, if we look at the affected vendors, this is from their from the website um, where the disclosure was made. Um, there's a whole bunch of systems that are listed here. You know, these ones are confirmed. These ones are still investigating. Uh, I should mention that the researchers did follow pretty, um, you know, strict and responsible disclosure practices. They worked with the vendor um, for, I think, more than a standard 120 days uh, before they disclosed it publicly. But anyway, when I look at these lists, um, what I see are are some of them. You know, they're all obviously big names and and probably important things, but based on my background and what I've been looking at um, over the last couple of years, these ones kind of jump out at me because these are um, vendors that sell equipment that go into uh, the power grid and uh, other critical infrastructure systems. All right, so that's what can happen if um, you know vulnerabilities make it through all the Q&A process at these vendors and and end up in our devices that we rely on. Now there's another type of, of concern, and that is you know, supply chain compromise, where, where somebody, an attacker, is able to insert their malicious code into the supply chain, into the products that are, that are being produced. And the example I wanted to share with that is, is a recent one, the SolarWinds supply chain compromise. So um, this has been in the news quite a bit lately. It was uh, first discovered back in uh, December uh, by FireEye, and they were investigating some, some strange behavior on their network and started to kind of unravel this whole thing. And from there, it has just spiderwebbed out, and there's all sorts of companies that are being affected. And you know, it's not just SolarWinds. That was just one kind of vector uh, into all these companies. But it's really interesting, too to read about and see how they were able to make use of the software that many companies rely on. Um, one of the things that makes this so interesting is the target that they chose. So the SolarWinds Orion Network Management System um, provides enterprise IT monitoring. So they actually <laughs> sell a product that is supposed to help you with your cybersecurity. And um, you know, depending on the configuration of this device, it generally has pretty broad access uh, to your infrastructure, to your IT infrastructure, um, and it also has a very high level of access, so often admin type privileges. And so it's a juicy target if, if you can compromise those systems because you kind of get the keys to the kingdom um, through those devices. Now the, the, um, the malware got to these organizations um, you know, over a few months period through legitimate uh, software distribution channels. So the Sorion update server, you know, automatically pushes out updates and the customers receive those updates and uh, install them. And so, you know, the very thing that uh, security experts will tell you, you need to patch for vulnerabilities is actually kind of what, what these attackers leveraged uh, to get in through the back door to these companies. And if you look at it, uh, if you read the reports, um, all of those updates were, were signed by SolarWinds, so they looked legitimate and um, no real reason not to trust them. Um, once installed, the, the Trojan software actually connects out to HTTP servers and uh, does command and control and then receive, eventually receives. If, if the attackers want to proceed with the attack, um, it'll receive additional stages of the malware.
All right, so who was affected in this one? Well, you know, it's it's all the big names. And uh, you can look at this list. <laughs> they, they took down this list from their website um, after the fact because they decided maybe it wasn't a good idea to to uh, point out who all was running their software. But um, it's all the big companies, a lot of government organizations, all five branches of the military. So these are these are big targets. But what I wanted to point out is that, you know, if anybody is gonna have the budget and the resources and the time and the talent to be able to do software supply chain um, assurance, it would be these guys. And yet uh, for many months, uh, this went unnoticed and the attackers were able to walk through their systems um, pretty easily. All right. Now, the software assurance field is, is not new. Um, it's been around for quite a while and there are lots of tools out there to help you uh, analyze and um, understand your software. So we took uh, a chance to survey the, the marketplace for these tools. And this is kind of what we found. So if you look at that, you know, those six stages of the software supply chain, um, the tool space, we looked at over 200 tools and it breaks down kind of by these numbers. Some tools fit into multiple categories. That's why it doesn't add up. But you can see here that, you know, the vast majority of these tools are focused in this phase here for the development and production of software. So developers, you know, when they build their, their code, when they're developing, uh, they have these tools and they look for bugs in their code. And uh, a lot of that can be automated. Um, the second highest is, is in acquisition and deployment. So if you are a customer and you are purchasing software and you want to do some due diligence and see if it's got any malicious functionality or vulnerabilities perhaps, then there are tools that you can uh, use to do that. And so those are kind of the, the big categories. Um, we didn't look a lot at this you know, disposal category. There are tools for that, but it wasn't really relevant to what we were doing in this survey. So what I wanna point out here is that, um, you know, there's really kind of two divisions of these tools. There's stuff that's, that's meant to be used kind of at the beginning of the supply chain during development. And then there's stuff to be used um, kind of on the receiving end, so when you receive software. But there's not a lot that kind of crosses between those. Um, there's not a lot that, that correlates the two different areas. And so we found that as, to be a gap um, in, this, in this marketplace. And interestingly enough, the SolarWinds compromise kind of targeted that gap, right? Because they targeted the build server um, running at SolarWinds and were able to insert their malicious code um, after the development took place. So no matter what you did to the source code to look for those bugs, you wouldn't have seen it because um, it was inserted after the fact. And then, you know, use legitimate uh, distribution channels to get to the customers where it was deployed. Um, so what we can take from that is that there is a gap and we need better tools in that space. Uh, there's a comment or a question saying, doesn't uh, CI, CD, so continuous integration, continuous deployment, bridge that gap? And yes, it does, um, it can, but if you're not looking at you know, the code going in and the code coming out and comparing those two, you may not be able to catch something that was inserted there. All right, 
So let me paint the picture of our strategy here at Lawrence Livermore for doing software assurance. And you know, this is the, the long-term vision. Um, it's a journey we're on. It's not something that we've fully solved <laughs> by any means. But you know, we've been doing software assurance for, for quite a while. And you know, just based on our on our mission, you can understand why. We have you know uh, very critical functions that need to be uh, examined, and we need to assure that uh, those things are done securely. And so, um, you know, if if you take a really good uh, like reverse engineer or somebody that understands you know program analysis and, and what makes software work, they can they can pretty much tell you if your software is secure. But it takes a lot of time and a lot of um, man hours to to do that. And unfortunately, the world that we live in, you know, there's just not enough of those type of people and that skill set to go around. So we can't rely on manual approaches to doing uh, this type of this type of analysis. And so we've got to have some sort of automation. So we've developed a set of tools that uh, help with that process. And there's, you know, it's kind of an iterative process where somebody looks at the code and is able to understand or is able to do that analysis, that reverse engineering and understand um, certain certain things within the code. And then we build a tool that helps to automate that. And, you know, we try to continually improve those. Over time, we hope to do that in a more automated fashion. And so one of the areas that I'll talk about here in a minute is just enumerating the components that make up your software. So we'd like to be able to do that fully automated and not require a, a person uh, to, to do that for us. Over time, we hope that we can uh, more fully automate the, the various types of analyses that we do. So discovering vulnerabilities and looking at software throughout the supply chain. Uh, and we've made some progress in, in that regard as well. With the eventual goal being that, you know, maybe someday we can have devices that are able to receive their updates. And before they install them, they have a way to automatically analyze and verify that that um, software is trustworthy and secure before deploying. So we have projects kind of running in, in all these different areas. Um, obviously the stuff more to the right is more long-term and kind of still at the basic research stage, but um, we are working in this space. So one of the tools, um, that we've we've spent a lot of time on at Lawrence Livermore is the Rose framework, and um, maybe you've heard of it, maybe not. But Rose is a um, it's a compiler framework that was initially developed uh, with kind of a single purpose in mind, and that was I mentioned our you know our high performance computing or supercomputing capability at the lab. And so every few years, um, DOE invests a lot of money in upgrading or purchasing a new uh, supercomputer. And uh, the code that is developed for those supercomputers needs to be ported uh, so that it can run on, on the new architecture because backwards compatibility isn't always the first consideration. Uh, in fact, I think it's seldom the first consideration <laughs> for, those, for those machines. And so Rose was developed as a way to do source to source transformations so that you could automate that process. So you didn't have to have somebody go through and port the code. It could just automatically take one code base and port it to the, the new system. Well, over the years, the, the framework that they developed for doing that, um, the researchers realized was, was also good for doing other types of analysis. So if you can um, abstract the source code 
to this intermediate representation, um, such as an abstract syntax tree, then you can run all sorts of um, static and dynamic analyses uh, and produce results from that. And then over time, they realized, well, you know, compiled software, software binaries, aren't really that much different. I mean, they're harder for humans to understand, but they can also be represented in this abstract syntax tree. And the same types of analyses can be done on binaries. So this is Rose. Um, it's been around for a while. Feel free to check it out. There's an open source version that you can download here at rosecompiler.org. So this is one of the tools that we've developed for, for doing this. And Rose is really powerful. Um, you can do pretty much anything in the space of binary analysis, um, but it's pretty complex and complicated. It's hard for, hard for somebody to get started using it. And so we wanted to build um, kind of a wrapper around Rose to make some of the common tasks a little easier to do. And so we built this tool called Longclaw. And Longclaw is an analysis framework for doing automatic, automated vulnerability discovery within software. Um, so it's based on Rose, but we've also integrated other third-party tools into the framework. And we kind of developed it from the very beginning with this idea of being highly scalable. Because one of the things we've realized is, you know, if we're ever going to make any traction on this, this problem of securing the supply chain, we have to look at a lot of software. You know, you can't just look at one binary every six months. You need to be able to do this fast and um, and do a lot of it. And so we built that. We we built Longclaw with that in mind, um, and we also built it very modular. So it's easy to integrate new uh, analysis uh, modules into the the framework. We use Docker to do that. So it's um, pretty nice to work with. And so I'm going to talk a little bit today about one of the use cases for this framework that we've developed. And that is uh, developing and generating a software bill of materials. So um, that's abbreviated SBOM. So we've already talked about how software is, is pretty complex, and there's a lot of it um, in all applications these days. Um, so one of the things that, that is kind of coming to the forefront of software assurance communities is this need to make our software a little more transparent and understand a little bit more what's going into that software. So, you know, obviously that's that's not the that's not the silver bullet that will solve all problems, but if we can at least take that step, then it opens up new possibilities um, for doing new types of analysis. And so, um, you can look at this diagram over here, but this kind of shows the different use cases of um, software bill of materials. And I listed a few of them here too, but one of the ones that we're most interested in um, from our perspective is vulnerability management. So understanding vulnerabilities in, in software. And one way to think about an SBOM is like a nutrition label for food. So, you know, we're all pretty familiar with these because we all uh, eat food. <laughs> and, uh, you know, food is not something that you can just look at and know what goes into it. And so the some some smart person a long time ago came up with this idea of a nutrition label to break down a complex product into its components and tell you what what percentage of your daily intake it includes. So could we do this for software? And here's my attempt at 
a software bill of materials that looks like a, a nutrition label. This, by the way, isn't what they really look like. I'll show you a real one here in a minute. All right. So how does one get a, a software bill of materials? Um, there's kind of two ways. One is that, you know, whoever's supplying the software, whoever's making the software could just produce that for you and distribute it with their software. And, you know, there's a grassroots effort right now, a, a growing community of, of people that think this is a really good idea. And they're, they're working with uh, different software vendors to incorporate these ideas into their um, development pipeline and their release systems so that we can just get the SBOM with the software. But that's, you know, that's going to take a long time for that to kind of catch on. Um, some people are all gung-ho to do that, but a lot of vendors need some, some convincing. Um, but there are tools that can automate that for you and make that pretty easy if you do it as part of the build process for your software. But until that time, until we get kind of a mass adoption, um, it would be nice to be able to have an SBOM for software where it's not provided by the vendor. And that's what we call um, an archeological SBOM. So you get the binary software uh, package or whatever, and you do some analysis and produce your own SBOM for it. And so that's the, the use case that we've been working on. All right, so just a reminder on the software build process, I'm sure you guys are all pretty familiar with this, but basically you start with source code, um, there's all these kind of transformation steps that eventually get you to a binary executable or a library or package software. And at each one of these steps, um, you know, these are, these are lossy steps. So you lose some of that uh, information that was in the original source code. But the end result is you have software that will run on, on your um, target system and hopefully it works well. So I want to point out here, um, there's this option to include libraries. And you know, hardly anybody these days just sits down at their machine, opens up a text editor, and starts cranking out code all from scratch. Um, modern software development, you know, agile software development, leverages work that's already been done by others. Because why reinvent the wheel if somebody's made a nice library available, you can just include that. And so there's lots of open source libraries. Um, there's also commercial libraries uh, that are available for purchase that make some of those standard functions um, widely available. And so if you're developing something specific to your use case, but you have um, components or, or libraries that um, have been developed by others, you can include those right in through the build process. And so we've developed this, this model for software, and it really kind of breaks down into these four areas. So there's products. This is kind of your, you know, your general idea of, of functionality that you have in your software. Um, there's packages that are specific um, bundles of software that, uh, you know, one instance of, of that product. And within that package, it contains uh, multiple components. So these are like the individual files that make up your software package. And then each of those files, uh, in particular, the, the binaries or libraries, contains one or more functions. And so if we want to do you know, that archaeological 
generation of an SBOM, um, we kind of have to go backwards, right? So we start with a software package that's a representation of a product, and we do some work to unpackage it. Usually this is pretty straightforward because um, a lot of the packaging tools have an uh, unpackaged uh, kind of equivalent. And then, you know, based on the um, binary file, we can uh, disassemble that. So there's tools that make that pretty easy to do. Um, probably a lot of you are familiar with Ida Pro or Ghidra. Uh, Rose also has a disassembler that can do that, and that's what we use. But it produces um, this assembly code. And you can actually take this a step further. You could run it through a decompiler and attempt to get uh, source code out. But a lot of times that doesn't work super well because, um, as I mentioned, it's you know this this lossy process. So a lot of reverse engineers, you know, people that are analyzing software at this level, kind of spend their time in here uh, looking at the the disassembly. All right. So if we're able to get those, um, you know, if we're able to get to the point where we've disassembled the file, then we have tools that can kind of look at you know those functions. And so as I mentioned in our our software data model before, um, we have products, packages, components, and functions. And another way to think about these is, is kind of this multipartite graph. So products have packages, you know, maybe different versions of that product are um, produced in, in these different packages. And then within a package, you have various components, and the component has uh, various functions. So this is nice if you can if you can get this understanding of software. The problem is there's some ambiguity in this graph because um, at least at the bottom two levels there might be overlap, right? There might be collisions where a single function um, exists in multiple components, and there's various reasons for this. Um, so I probably won't get into all of those right now, but one reason that this happens is because you've got multiple versions of a library, let's say. And if code doesn't change between versions for a particular function, then it's going to stay the same. And so you'll have that same um, you'll have that same function in multiple versions. Another reason that might happen is if there's kind of this um, like almost inheritance or dependency within your component. So if component A relies on component B and the functionality or the function is coming from that uh, library at the kind of at the top, then that might show up in multiple places. So these are some of the problems you have to deal with when you're looking at software kind of from this bottom up uh, approach. And this is what we've been working on in our tool. All right, so let's let's kind of fast forward a little bit here um, since I know we're getting low on time, but um, our tool Longclaw is is functional, and we can generate a software bill of materials. So over here on the right, I promised I would show you what, what an SBOM looks like, but this is one um, that we we generated for WGET, and this is in SPDX format, one of the popular formats for doing SBOMs. Um, our tool has a series of uh, like analytics, so these kind of heuristic algorithms that um, kind of deconflict these ambiguities in the graph and try to make um, a good uh, approximation of which uh, specific version or specific component is included in that software. 
it's not perfect. It doesn't always work. Um, quite often we aren't able to distinguish between two versions, so we have to just leave that out um, for now. So we're working on, on better methods and better tools that can help to disambiguate um, those relationships. Uh, another thing that we're looking at currently is there's this wealth of information for open source um, uh, packages from uh, many of the popular package managers. So if you're familiar with uh, Debian distributions, they have the apt uh, package manager and they make um, very clear, you know, how all those relationships um, are, are structured in, in this uh, system. So, we think that we can leverage that information to help enrich our database and map out some of those dependencies. So that's one of the things we're working on currently. All right, oh, I see a question popped up. Are there methods or metrics for characterizing any uncertainty in the component estimation matching? And like, for example, which version? Um, we don't currently have that, but it's certainly something we've, we've talked about. Like it would be really nice to be able to say, you know, um, how confident are we that this uh, component is the one that's showing up in this software? So I agree that that would be beneficial and we will definitely continue to work on that. Okay, so let's say we have an SBOM. Well, now what? Um, you know, an SBOM in and of itself, like I said, isn't a silver bullet. It's not going to solve all our problems. Um, it's, you know, it may have helped a little bit with the SolarWinds compromise, um, depending on how the SBOM was produced. Um, but if the bad guys have access to the build system, then they could probably just as easily, uh, you know, uh, affect the SBOM that you're getting from the company. So it's, it's debatable whether or not that would help there. But some of the other problems uh, definitely could be helped uh, by this. One of the things we're looking at is, you know, how can we identify known vulnerabilities that have been disclosed, like those trick vulnerabilities, in software that we're running in our environment. So we'd like to be able to just, um, you know, submit that those software binaries or firmware and determine if any known vulnerabilities uh, exist for them. So an SBOM can help with that. But one of the things that we've realized uh, is that while it might help, um, you know, kind of point a finger at a component that could have a vulnerability, uh, with just that very high level view of the software components, you can't really pinpoint whether or not that vulnerability is present and um, affects that software. And so to do that, we need to go kind of uh, to a more uh, granular view. And the example here on the right is just showing how we do that. So we can actually look at those functions um, within the component and determine if they're present in our binary. There's a lot of other work that we're doing. Um, I didn't have time to talk about it all today, but um, certainly, you know, we need tools and capabilities to be able to discover unknown vulnerabilities because that's kind of the whole point. If, if you know about them, they're easy to find. If you don't, then um, those are the ones that can really bite you. So we're working on tools that can do that. Um, we're also looking on at ways to kind of track the evolution of software. So if you know, we're ingesting libraries into our database, how do they change between versions? And are they fixing um, vulnerabilities? Is the software getting better over time? Um, binary attestation is a really interesting area to look at. It's basically, um, 
you know, can you um, describe your, your software that you've built, you know, in your source code and certify that that functionality makes it through to the binary and that no additional functionality is included. So we're working on some tools for that. Uh, concolic testing is another approach to look at, you know, how inputs affect uh, kind of the code flow um, through your program. And um, we want to basically be able to show which inputs cause certain behaviors. Um, and then the last one is something that some of my colleagues are working on, which is even if you know that this, you know, a, a particular software binary has vulnerabilities in it, well, that's not the end of the story, right? Like, how does that affect the bigger picture? What is the actual impact of that? Because maybe it's running in such a way that that vulnerability doesn't really matter. It's mitigated by, you know, the network settings or something. And so how do we take what we know about a, a particular piece of software and then apply that to this bigger systems problem and figure out that impact? Oh, I see another question has popped up. Has SBOM been integrated into your XCM controls? If so, where did you integrate SBOM in the CM program? Um, so I don't think that has happened yet for us. So I don't work directly for the organization that's responsible for the NIST uh, 853 controls in our organization. So the tools we're developing certainly could be applied there, um, but they haven't yet. So um, future, future work, I guess, future progress for us. All right, so I just wanna wrap up and leave a little bit of time for questions. Um, in conclusion, software is, is very complex and it's full of risks to organizations that are, that are using it. Um, in some cases, even our security best practices make this a, a more challenging problem because we have this constant update process and lots of new software coming in that really should be evaluated before it's deployed. Uh, there are many tools available, but there's still gaps that exist in kind of this bigger picture, um, broader ecosystem. And we think that uh, automation is key to solving these problems because just because of the scale of the problem. Um, so I talked about SBOMs and how they might help to identify vulnerabilities in our supply chain, um, but definitely further work is needed to uh, build new tools and address some of those gaps and find unknown vulnerabilities and what their impact is on our devices. So with that, I will open it up to questions. And thank you all for, for sitting through that and listening to me. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, it was an interesting talk. Okay, I think we have one question. So, Krasimir, you say you have a comment, I guess, not question. Let me see, quick here. So um, I have a quick question actually. So in your slides, um, I didn't see any fuzzing. So in recent years, as you might see, you know, like uh, in research community, there are uh, diverse fuzzing frameworks. Mm -hmm. um, so like, 
do they help you find the vulnerabilities or did you integrate any fuzzing tool to into your uh, like the the life cycle of your software analysis yeah so we haven't done that yet um that that survey that I talked about, some of those 200 tools, there were a number of fuzzers that we looked at. And it's definitely a, a useful tool for discovering vulnerabilities, like you said. So yeah, absolutely, you should do that. Um, our tools have mostly been focused kind of on a on static analysis, so not actually executing the code, whereas fuzzers generally want to execute the code uh, to be able to find those vulnerabilities. Yes, yes, may, may make sense, right? So yeah. Yeah, this idea of concolic testing that I talked about also is is pretty powerful um, in that regard as well, because one of the challenges in, in fuzzing is getting inputs that will kind of exercise the functionality in your code. Yes. And there's lots of smart ways of doing that. People have been working on that for quite a while. But I think concolic testing is one way to approach that. Yes, I think there are some works um, integrated fuzzing and concolic testing together. <laughs> Yep. There are still open problems. I see in top tier security conferences, lots of works in um, fuzzing, actually. So yeah. the idea is, I mean, it just finds, um, you know, undiscovered bugs, zero day bugs. So I think which makes them uh, kind of interesting. Uh, hey, sorry, I'm actually with two devices because one of them doesn't have audio. So I apologize. I was misleading to ask you to unmute me on the other one. Um, so a couple of comments here. Uh, the first one is that uh, SolarWinds was not so much an S-bomb failure um, as it is an architecture failure. Because why would you give full permission to everything for software that needs to read some counters? There are far better ways to, to do that. And this is where a lot of the problems are coming because uh, a lot of other security principles like minimum privilege or um, are just violated in terms of architecture. Uh, the reason I'm saying this is because um, there, I, have, I have observed a number of nation state introduced vulnerabilities, which are pure, uh, pure um, possible deniability. What I mean is that we have a foreign agent working for a company inserting a particular piece of code that intentionally doesn't do uh, a buffer overflow check. And then we see the same nation state do exploitation of this very bug using that particular uh, buffer. So you can't catch this with S-bomb because for all intensive purposes, this code uh, was meant to be there. So I think uh, S-bomb is really good, but we also need to pay attention to properly training people to uh, not only develop software properly, but also to deploy it properly. Yeah, I absolutely agree. That was my first question is like, why do you have this uh, management system that can talk to all your infrastructure, but can also call out to random, you know, IP addresses, <laughs> do DNS? Yeah, I personally stopped using SolarWinds some 15 years ago. At the time was much more software, but I remember that I rewrote all the capability that I needed in under two weeks uh, in Perl. And it I was like, why do I even need this <laughs> thing? Uh, but anyway, um, the rest of my case. Uh, just another note. Uh, also, Kudenomicon, before they were acquired by Sino, uh, uh, oh, uh, but anyway, they, they had a piece of software that did exactly what you're trying to do. The, I remember about six years ago, they had a huge library of, uh, of binary objects and functions. So you could even feed them an ISO 
they would read the file system, extract the different uh, components, and then dissect it. Uh, mm. Basically, they would be looking for the function calls, um, and they would take those, they had smart hashing, and they would match functions to known functions from particular, particular versions of software. So uh, I forgot the name of the product. They're currently um, owned by uh, Synopsys. So you may look at yeah. that as well. I think uh, Black Duck. Is that the one? Yeah, sounds familiar, yeah. Yeah, yeah. there's a few tools out there that can uh, generate S-bombs this way. Um, yeah, anyway, so definitely commercial mm -hmm. products available. Yeah, yeah, because I, I mean, let's face it, um, most companies are so uh, thin on budget, they would, not uh, they would not want to deploy additional screening of their software and their software build um, when they do that, when they, when they release software. Yeah. Just the reality. Yeah. Thank you for the presentation. All right. So we are hey, Levi, I, I think we have some questions in the chat also. Um, oh, one question from Kevin is, do you expect Long Claw to be commercialized someday? Um, yeah, we, we would really like to commercialize it. So we've actually been talking um, to our sponsor about that and um, trying to understand if, if that's something we can do. So all the stuff that we've built to do the um, SBOM generation right now is you know, our open source tools. So it shouldn't really be a problem to open source that. We just have to kind of get the sponsor buy-in before we can do that. Sorry, I didn't even see the chat. I was looking at the Q&A. Yeah. Anything else from there? Yeah, another question from Paul. Um, how is SBOM different from uh, capabilities that GitHub uh, has? Um, I guess I'm not sure what specific capabilities, but you know, if, if you have the source code, it's generally pretty easy to uh, to produce the SBOM code linting. Oh, okay, so yeah, so that's kind of a separate area. So looking at source code for bugs and stuff. Um, so yeah, SBOM doesn't really address that, but um, we do have some other tools in Longclaw that do kind of source code uh, analysis. And so, you know, probably pretty similar to what's in GitHub. And there's a lot of tools as I showed that kind of fit in that space. All right, I think we are out of time and these are the old questions. Uh, Lee, thank you so much. It was uh, nice to, you know, like listen all these interesting topics. And I hope that sometime when it's warmer, you visit Purdue, the <laughs> best of it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Would be very happy to host you here. Okay, sounds good. Well, thank right. you so much. Have thank a good day, you. everyone. Thanks, Levi. Take care.